You're listening to ReachMD. The following episode was produced in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation and the American Gastroenterological Association. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Hey, welcome everybody to the third annual Crohn's and Colitis uh, Congress in Austin, Texas. This is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I'm delighted to have Dr. Corey Siegel with me. He's co-director of the IBD program and section chief of the Dartmouth Hitchcock uh, Medical Center, particular department, I believe, is uh, of the yep. digestive diseases. Uh, yep, section <laughs> of gastroenterology and hepatology, part of the Department of Medicine. Perfect, Thanks, perfect. So welcome to you. Our topic today for the Ask the Expert series is explaining risk to patient. To start, Dr. Siegel, um, I'd love to get a high-level, uh, 30,000-foot overview of strategies that you've found to be effective and useful in practice just to help explain risk of treatments to patients. And maybe just we can start with that overview and then we'll get into the brass tacks. Sure. I've evolved over time on this. I I think I started in my career when we didn't know a lot about the risk. You know, all we had were black box warnings and no quantification of the risk. We just heard words like cancer and tuberculosis and and dying. And and it's a bad place to start when you're walking into an office visit. So, you know, earlier in my career, that's what actually motivated me towards the research I've done on this is trying to recognize that, first of all, we don't even know what we're talking about as far as risk. And second, that patients are pretty scared because they don't know exactly what they're dealing with. So my initial approaches really were to be defensive about risk and try to just throw numbers out to dissuade this worry that these drugs are so risky and that they were going to die of cancers and all sorts of bad things. And, and turn that around over the past couple of years to realize that that's not our intent is to have to defend these drugs, but to defend the reason that we're using the drugs and really talk about the risk of their disease more than we talk about the risk of the drugs. And then bring that in and give some very specific, quantitative, absolute numbers of how much risk there really is, as opposed just to just saying things like, oh, yeah, the drugs can cause lymphoma. You should talk to your doctor. Mm-hmm. And as far as that quantitative reasoning goes, what data are you drawing from typically um, that uh, patients, there are many who want to take charge in themselves and find whatever they can find to either rationalize or justify their fears. What data are you drawing from to help either dis- dissuade those fears or help lead them down a path that, that is right for them? Sure. Well, 20 years ago, we didn't have a lot of data. All we had were clinical trial data that went six months or 12 months, and that wasn't the right way to determine how safe these drugs were long-term. But now, you know, infliximab was approved 22 years ago. So we have, and when I tell patients that, they're amazed sometimes that we have over 20 years of data, not only from clinical trial experience, but from registries that are global of tens or hundreds of thousands of patients. And even the newer drugs that are on the market now, the number of patients that are required to run these clinical trials has gone up over time. So we really learn a lot from this. The second part, which is nice, is the rheumatologists are always a step ahead of us with our biologic drugs. So most of the drugs that we use have also been used in other fields before they're even approved for inflammatory bowel disease. So although it's a different patient population and and different patients and different indications, when you look at a safety database, it's actually pretty fair to rely on those safety data as well. And what outcome measures or um, uh, just long-term outcomes, short-term outcomes, do you uh, used to help translate the important data to your patients? It's a question of translation. Yeah. So, you know, when you, if, if you open the package in for, for these drugs or if you listen to the second half of every commercial about a, a drug that you see on TV, 
it's an incredibly long list of potential outcomes. Most of those are one-off outcomes that have reported truly a handful of times in the world over time of exposure to these drugs. But I find that when I ask patients what they're really worried about, or I ask my colleagues what they're worried about, it's typically two things. It's serious infections, serious and life-threatening infections, and cancers. And those are the two that I really try to focus on. And let's, let's jump from that. Risk of infection. A patient who's going to be moving towards a biologic, terrified of, of being immunosuppressed, being um, higher risk for infection. How do you broach that conversation, and how do you counsel these patients? Yeah. Uh, first, I try to get a sense of how worried the patient really is about this. And it's not that we don't want to not inform patients who aren't worried, but sometimes you actually create more concern than you're trying to alleviate by being defensive, as I mentioned earlier. So I, I simply ask them, how much do you know about these medications? Have you looked things up? Have you talked to family or friends? And you get a really good sense pretty quickly of how they shift in the chair and how they make eye contact with you, if it's something that they're really nervous about. And what's amazing is if you ask patients, their responses are not typically in line with the reality of, of the risk. For example, I've asked a number of patients what they're most worried about. And, and in the region where I am in northern New England, I see a lot of patients who are second or third opinions who, who could be because they're very complicated, but could be because their doctor sent them to me to, quote, talk some sense into them because they're, they're not going to take any – they said they're not taking any drugs – and I start with, tell me what you're so worried about the drugs, and almost always the answer is cancer. And I say, okay, what kind of cancer? And they say, well, I don't know, you know, cancer, cancer. And I say, well, first of all, there are only very specific types of cancer that can occur with these drugs, and we talk about skin cancers, and we talk about lymphomas. And I say, how often have you heard that these might cause cancer? And we did this, not only do we do this in the clinic, but we did this as a survey as well that we published. And patients say anywhere from you know, one in a million, which is wrong, uh, to 5%, 10%, 20%, and up to 50%. Yeah. So some of these patients are coming in, and we as providers have a hard time understanding why are they being so unreasonable about this? Well, it's because they think there might be a 50% chance risk of cancer, and of course they should be scared of that. We would never use a medication with that sort of risk. Mm -hmm. But it's a great way to start the conversation and asking what they know so that you could then play off of that and alleviate some of those concerns. And once you start explaining the absolute risks, which are, again, how many patients out of a set denominator. I use the denominator of 10,000 when we talk about lymphoma. Then all of a sudden, people start getting more relaxed. Interesting. And you're speaking to a broader issue that I want to ask you about, which is the possible care gaps or disparities in communication between uh, specialists or professionals before they even walk in your door. So patients who come to you and they've been in a situation where maybe some of their, their concerns were not only unalleviated but uh, compounded mm -hmm. based on uh, some communicative uh, issues. Yeah. What are some care coordination improvements that can help take that down? Yeah, I think partly it's educating our colleagues. And if you're taking care of IBD patients and you don't know these risks, you better learn them and have a way to communicate with them. Because if you're fearful of them and if you pose the answer of, well, they're kind of these drugs that have some risks associated with them and we're going to have to test you for TB and does some other genetic testing, and we're going to check your labs every couple of weeks, and if you get lymphoma, give me a call. You know, they're, they're going to be really put off by it. And I think our patients put so much trust in their providers, and if their providers are showing hesitance or worry about it, then they're never going to take them. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that they shouldn't be concerned, and I'm also not saying to cover up any risk because there are some real risks that we have to talk to them about 
but I think we have to present them with confidence that we have a lot of data. Again, we have over 20 years of data about biologic therapy now, shorter on some of the newer biologics, but learning more all the time. And to be very fair that we're balancing this against the risk of their disease. And the alternative of not taking some of these immune suppressant therapies are the riskiest drug without question that we have in our armamentarium, which is prednisone. And corticosteroids, because they're cheap, because they're easy, because they make people feel better, are really something that uh, many gravitate to because it's an easy, quick fix. Mm -hmm. But the risks of exposure to corticosteroids are actually far outweigh any of the risks that we can even come up with with the biologic therapies. Let's take uh, an opposite situation. You've spoken on this before, I believe. It's a patient who's in remission, comes in and saying, well, I very much want to just stop all my medications. No. Um, I'm obviously, you know, I don't need it anymore. I'm doing fine. How do you counsel these patients? Yeah, th these are tricky conversations. You know, uh, a number of years ago, the answer was absolutely not. That's crazy. Uh, we will lose the one drug that's working for you, and it's never going to work if you restart it again. And it wouldn't even be a conversation that we would entertain. But we've learned a little bit more, and now that we have a number of biologics, I, I entertain the question with it really explaining what the risks of doing this are and what the benefits might be of coming off. So the, the typical situation is just what you described, but I'll add a little more specifics to it, which is we've, we got them on combination therapy, which is a combination of a biologic drug and an immune modulator, our best treatment regimen. And patients come in and say, I'm, I'm doing great. You did a colonoscopy, they're doing great. And they say they want to come off of one or both of the medications. And it, it has been studied somewhat, not in a great prospective way or in a randomized way yet, but just recently in Europe, they completed a trial called SPARE that they randomized patients who were on combination therapy and they had one arm stay on two drugs, another arm where they withdrew infliximab, and a third arm where they kept them on infliximab but withdrew azathioprine. And we don't know the results of this yet, but it's looking at outcomes that are both around relapse of disease and side effects and, and safety. Hmm. And what's interesting is we were part of this, our research group at, at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, in part of this uh, European, actually now global study, where we surveyed patients and providers to see if they would want to stop therapy. And the perception is that they always would want to stop therapy because it's a better, a, a, a better thing for them or you know, less exposure to drugs. But uh, interestingly, many patients didn't want to stop therapy at all. They were finally happy that they were better and in remission. And I think it's a reasonable thing to consider. And in many cases, in the patient that I just described, we would, we would consider stopping azathioprine which I consider the riskier of the drugs if you're using them long-term as compared to biologics. Mm -hmm. But I was you know, sort of pleasantly surprised to see that many patients wanted to stay on medication because they recognized that it made them better mm -hmm. and they didn't want to stop. Any other research ongoing either uh, through your group or, or some of your colleagues out there uh, nationally and globally that are also looking into how to better manage, better uh, counsel those about risk? Yeah, so work, the other work that we've done, and, you know, we've tried to take a, a broad look about managing risk. And as I mentioned earlier, most of my research career early was focused on figuring out how much risk these medications really brought and how do we accurately communicate that to patients. And we've developed videos. We've developed uh, one-page risk palettes of how many patients out of 10,000 might develop lymphoma. The number, by the way, that I use is up to nine patients out of 10,000 is the highest risk estimate we've really ever seen in the literature of developing lymphoma, whether you're on biologic monotherapy, azathioprine monotherapy, or combination therapy. Mm -hmm. 
And after I worked on those, the next place I turned my attention was to trying to understand the patient's risk of their disease. So if you're seeing a patient who's relatively recently diagnosed and you're trying to figure out if this is somebody you can just watch and see how they do for a while, or do we need to jump in and use our very best treatment regimen, which in some cases would be combination therapy, some cases would be one of the newer biologics as monotherapy, wouldn't it be nice to know which of the patients are at high risk of progressing their disease and how quickly they'll get there versus patients where you might actually be able to watch them for a year or two or three and treat them symptomatically and repeat an endoscopy in a year and see how things look. So uh, with efforts from a a great group, we developed a tool called Prospect, which is a program that patients come in, we uh, take blood from them and check their genetics and some serologic markers in addition to looking at their disease distribution, so where their Crohn's disease is, and we're fairly accurately able to predict over the next three years what their chance of having a complication of their disease is. A complication meaning uh, stricture or penetrating disease or needing an abdominal surgery. And it's a very pretty graphical tool that's uh, printed out for patients so that you can look at it as a shared decision-making tool with your patients. And when patients see that they're actually at pretty high risk of needing a surgery over two or three years, the whole conversation changes. It turns away from oh, I'm too scared of these drugs, to doctor, what can we do to prevent these complications? So to me, a lot of our effort, again, has to go toward making sure our patients understand the implications of undertreated or untreated disease as opposed to just trying to defend the safety of these medications. Nice. Now, before um, I scale back again, just in case there's any other questions that come around, um, I want to pose it to you, put the... Um, question talking opportunity in your camp to to address anything that we haven't talked about that you think is particularly important something that whether it's um you know an ongoing issue a uh, a continuing challenge or just an opportunity to be able to uh, speak to our audience about an area that you're particularly passionate about in this field uh, I, I think the one thing i'd like to add and and many you know at this uh meeting and many in the audience know this but the risk of these drugs is is time dependent so the, the biggest risk, again, time and time again, when patients come in, I could almost assure you that what they're worried about, whether they vocalize it or not, is worried about cancer. And I urge you to take a few minutes to explain to them that we're dealing with really only two specific types of cancers. We're talking about skin cancers, which we could manage and we understand how to prevent, and lymphomas, which are more unpredictable but have a very definitive risk profile that we can uh, predict for them. Again, numbers of about nine out of 10,000 patients, which is a pretty low number, but you can show that and display it to them in a number of different ways. But the important message I want to add to that that we haven't covered is it's based on how long you've been on therapy. So the scariest type of the cancers that we deal with, both, both as adult and pediatric gastroenterologists, are these what are, what are called hepatosplenic T-cell lymphomas, these very aggressive, very hard-to-treat lymphomas that happen mostly in young people, mostly in young men, but could happen with anybody. If you look at the world's literature of who's ever developed hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma, almost every single one of them have occurred after two years of therapy. So you have this window of opportunity within the first one or two years of treating patients that it is really a very safe environment to use almost any treatment or combination of treatments that we have. And the question you asked before about withdrawing therapy, that's the appeal, is we have one great shot to get our patients into remission. It's that golden time when they come in and they're recently diagnosed. They haven't failed three biologics and had six surgeries, but they're 
a relatively new diagnosis, we might predict their risk is high and want to treat them aggressively with our best drug combination, that that risk of cancer, although you need to have it with your patients, is truly near negligible in the first one to two years of therapy. So my practice has been, let's use our very best treatment regimen, whether it's one drug or two drugs, carefully evaluate things over six to 12 months, look for an opportunity to withdraw the drug that we think is most implicated in these long-term cancer risks, which are the immunomodulator drugs, and then thinking about pulling that away. And once you say that to patients, it really changes it. Because if you can help alleviate their concern about these cancers, help alleviate our concern, totally backed up by data, that we're doing something that's safe and effective with a plan to take away the drug that you and the patient might be worried about, I think it's really the best strategy. So I'd urge our our colleagues to really make sure your patients understand that this isn't something that happens after a week or two or a month or two or even a year of therapy. It's something that really happens after 18, 24 months of exposure. So sage words, and I have to tell you right up front, Dr. Siegel, you are uh, one of the best color commentators in our IBD sportscaster setup I could oh, ask well, for, so you. I really appreciate your time. Uh, from all of us at ReachMD and uh, over here at the uh, Crohn's and Colitis Congress, really thank you for, for sharing your insights today. Great. Thank you for having me. <laughs> this program was brought to you in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation and the American Gastroenterological Association. If you missed any part of this discussion or to find others in this series, visit ReachMD.com foundation, where you can be part of the knowledge.